Hi everyone and welcome to this latest episode of our Brexit and Beyond podcast from the UK in a Changing Europe. And once again, I'm lucky to be joined by not one, but two people here in my little office. Firstly, the ubiquitous Jill Rutter of Team UK in a Changing Europe and also Team IFG. And our special guest today is none other than the one and only Will Moy, Chief Exec of Full Fact and an all-round star. And before I say proper hello to Will, I should just give you in the interests of full disclosure the fact that I am a trustee of Full Fact, so I'm not about to slag the organisation off if that's what you're listening for. But Will, welcome. Thank you very much, Alan. And Jill, welcome. And I should add that I've done some work with Full Fact, so I'm biased too. Excellent. So now we've got all our biases on the table. Let's just start with the beginning, shall we, Will? What is Full Fact and where did the idea of it come from? Full Fact is an attempt to keep politics and journalism honest. And it came from serious people in politics and journalism who think that they are important and deserve to be done well. Uh, Long ago, I was working for a crossbench member of the House of Lords, non-party political. He's blind, a guy called Colin Lowe, very, very impressive man. And I was reading everything that was sent to him in that capacity, and some of it was rubbish, (laughs) and that was annoying. And I read Peter Oborn's book, The Rise of Political Lying, which said, look, in America, they've got these fact-checking organisations. Maybe we need something like that in the UK. And it turned out that lots of other people were having that thought at the same time. A guy called Michael Samuel, who became the chair of Full Fact and uh, set up the board of Full Fact as an organisation with me and many other volunteers, was thinking the same thing. I got introduced to him and we gradually, over two years, put together a cross-party board of trustees, launched it in 2010 under a Labour Prime Minister for a few months. And what is it? Four general elections, three referendums, <laughs> one pandemic, one inquiry into press culture and ethics later. And obviously, honesty in politics has transformed dramatically. And, you know, everything's going swimmingly now. As indeed is full fact. It's worth saying that full fact has mushroomed, hasn't it, in size? It has, yes. We started with just three members of staff in 2010. And we are now a team of about 35 We have a dedicated artificial intelligence team funded by Google.org. We want a global challenge to get that funding, doing cutting-edge AI to tackle misinformation and disinformation. We have a large team of journalists, communicators, and obviously fundraisers and operations team as well. And is the problem of dissimulation, of lying, of a lack of honesty greater now than it was in the past, do you think? The thing is, it's not one problem. And the way we make progress is by breaking it down and recognising the different problems that are going on. So we have, obviously, very prominent in the news at the moment, the problem of people in positions of power choosing to be careless with the facts they use or choosing to mislead other people. And that problem is made possible because the standards in the House of Commons are really weak. There is not a process for requiring people who repeatedly mislead the House of Commons to correct the record. So we're talking to the Procedure Committee there and asking them to uphold basic standards, which everybody expects, which every MP has committed to, and actually change the rules so that rules mean something. On the other hand, online, and this is the big transformation in full facts world since we launched in 2010, online we've gone from a world which is basically 10 newspapers, 5 TV channels, to a world where people are getting their information from thousands of different sources. It's easier and cheaper to reach small numbers of people, and it's much more expensive to reach everybody with the same message. And in a world where democracy depends on shared experience... That's a fundamental challenge for how democracy Mm. works and how we have an informed democracy. And that's the forefront of what we're trying to tackle now. So, Will, you were just mentioning sort of, you know, the fact that there's no way of correcting the record, no obligations on that in 
Parliament. But it's quite interesting, I thought. Um, one of the things you've repeatedly called the Prime Minister out on is this employment stat that he absolutely loves, that employment's at record levels, which yeah, it's not right. But then he was even misleading when he talked to the Liaison Committee when they asked whether he corrected, and he said, yes, he had, which he hadn't. But what sanctions can you actually have that are going to bite on somebody who is really so prepared to play fast and loose with the truth? Well, that's a question for MPs, isn't it? And whether they think they can do their jobs if ministers can repeatedly say things that aren't true in the House of Commons without being called out on it. What Boris Johnson said, I think, was that employment was going up when actually it's been going down. That's due to the difference between payroll employment and self-employment. And he's said this now at least 10 times. Either way, either possibility is quite disturbing there. Either he is now deliberately saying something that's not true because he's been warned about it by full fact, he's been challenged in the liaison committee, he's been challenged by the Office for Statistics Regulation, which is a statutory body set up by Parliament, or mm. he genuinely believes something that's not true about people's jobs and livelihoods, which is perhaps an even more concerning interpretation and why it's so important that we get the facts right in public debate. What can MPs do? Well, ministers are under a duty in the House of Commons rules if they make an inadvertent mistake to correct the record. That duty is not enforced in a reliable way. In this case, MPs have asked the Prime Minister to correct the record. The Liaison Committee, which is the only select committee that can call the Prime Minister to speak before it, asked him about this specifically. And he said, I think I remember it. I think we're taking steps to correct the record or something along those lines. He has put a letter in the library, sort of vaguely recognising that the thing is wrong, but has taken no steps to actually correct the record. And it's perplexing because he could and he should. But it's a real challenge to the whole purpose of the House of Commons. And MPs of all parties have to decide whether they are going to change the rules, not so that they can have a fight over every individual thing ministers say, but we say that where an, a minister has repeatedly failed to correct the record, and that this can be tested by the House of Commons mm -hmm. Library, which is already there as a research service impartial for MPs. If the Speaker is convinced that there is a repeated failure to meet the House's standards, the Speaker needing to be convinced so the process can't be politicised, then it should be possible to refer it to the Standards Committee for an inquiry, not about one claim, but about a pattern of behaviour of misleading the House of Commons without correcting the record. And if you're willing to accept that pattern of behaviour, what kind of a parliament are you? I suppose two questions occur based on that answer. And the first is, all else being equal, so insofar as it's possible, sort of holding constant the role of technology and all those that you mentioned before, is this generation of politicians worse than previous generations, do you think? So full fact doesn't fact check a random or representative sample of what politicians say. So we can't say in a sort of authoritative and rigorous mm -hmm. way what the trends over time are. One of the things I found fascinating about Peter Oborn's book, The Rise of Political Lying, is he pretty much dated the beginning of it from when Tony Blair became leader of the opposition. And I'm yes. not sure many people would find that convincing. Mm -hmm. I think if you talk to people with longer experience of politics than me, they'd say it'd been going on for a very long time. But what I find striking about this administration, as opposed to the previous administrations of both parties that I've been involved in fact-checking, is that previous prime ministers would quietly drop something when they got it wrong. Only one has ever actually formally corrected the record in the House of Commons. That was David Cameron in response to one of our fact checks. But previous administrations, when they found that one of their major claims was wrong, would quietly drop it. 
And this administration has not done that. And that's, I think, an important difference. I understand that politicians want to avoid embarrassment and may see corrections as embarrassing, whereas actually, in my experience, they build trust rather than losing it. But continuing to make the claim when it is clear it is wrong is a different kind of behaviour than we've seen before. I suppose that the second question is, do other countries do this better? Are there countries that could act as models for us in trying to uphold these standards in political life? The Scottish Parliament does it better. There's a well-established process where, whereby members of the Scottish Parliament can correct the record. And the corrections process in the House of Commons, I should explain, only applies to ministers. There is actually no formal process for backbench MPs, even the leader of the opposition or a shadow minister, to correct the record when they mm-hmm. make a factual okay. error. Only government ministers in the House of Commons. So we only have to look as far as Edinburgh for <laughs> some better ideas here. I mean, is there, is there a way of regulating this? I mean, can you have an honesty regulator? Is, I mean, is, are, are there models anywhere of, of places that say, OK, we're going to set up a statutory body and the role of that body is to ensure that politicians are honest in the claims they make and the promises they make insofar as that's possible? I think you can do elements of that. The UK, for example, the Advertising Standards Authority used to have a limited role in political advertising until the consensus between the political parties broke down, I think, in the 1990s. We have called on the political parties to pull their thumbs out and agree that there should be basic standards of honesty in political advertising once Mm -hmm. again and that they should be upheld independently. It's not impossible because it's happened before. We have the statutory UK Statistics Authority, the Office for Statistics Regulation, Mm -hmm. Its job is to ensure the integrity of official statistics, and a small but important part of that remit is pointing out when those official statistics are misused by government ministers or other people in public life. And in Holland, for example, they have a process where manifestos are submitted for independent costing Mm -hmm. before they are put to the public, so people can understand what they would actually cost. There's been a debate as to whether the Office for Budget Responsibility should have a similar role in the UK, because every time we have an election, the Institute for Fiscal Studies does all the sums that basically says we're not being presented with an honest set of choices. We could change that by putting in new institutions. And then in the US, the Congressional Budget Office, where legislation comes before Congress, does what it calls scoring, i.e. saying how much that legislation will cost. That system needs improving because it comes up with a single precise number for something that always has uncertainty attached. But the idea that the assessment is made independently of government rather than by government is a healthy one. So integrity in public life is protected by a thousand institutions Mm. and acts of quiet integrity. It's not protected by one big bang, one mega law or one mega institution, but you can absolutely put in place trusted, serious, specialist institutions that can help shore up the boundaries of accuracy and honesty in public life. But it does then depend, doesn't it, on people being fussed if they're called out. And I think what you were saying earlier is that in a sense what's different now is that the political penalty for being called out for using misleading information seems to have reduced dramatically, maybe because people have just lost their trust in politicians generally and think that that's what politicians do. Do you think that's true? Well, I'd say that is a debate that is still playing out 
and every MP has a role in deciding whether the penalties for honesty in politics are going yeah. to be there or not. Every voter has a role in deciding whether we're going to hold politicians to account for their honesty or not. 25,000 people have signed a petition put up by Full Fact asking MPs to change the rules to require proper corrections processes in the House of Commons. People do care about this. MPs do care about this. And many of them demonstrate that with their actions as well as their words. We very often fact check politicians who are correct. And it's a really important and healthy thing mm. to remember that the cynicism about political life is not in my 12 years of experience of looking at this, you know, in a dull and fastidious way, justified. So this is a moment of decision, I absolutely think, as to how we hold people to account. But I believe there are plenty of people who think it is important to hold people, even on their own side of politics, to account for the honesty of the facts they use. Is your job made harder by, by the polarisation we currently see in society? I mean, social scientists use concepts like motivated reasoning to sort of indicate the fact that you tend to look out for evidence that supports what you already think. And is this level of division problematic when it comes to the role of an organisation like Full Fact? Yes, I think it is. One of the sort of, if you like, lived experiments of Full Fact is can you build a trusted non-partisan organisation in the internet age? And I think enough people of enough different political persuasions use our work that we've shown that the answer is yes, but it's hugely difficult. And I feel two things about this. One is, if I were a woman or a person of colour leading Full Fact, I would be getting far more abuse than I am. And it's really worth remembering that the sheer level of abuse on a personal level in politics is a huge deterrent to people trying to do constructive things in the mm -hmm. political arena, whether it's fact-checking or anything else. But the other side is, you know, since the Scottish referendum in 2014, you know, we saw, I think, a, a noticeable uptick of anger and online abuse around that debate, and it's been growing ever since. We've lived through a period of incessant attacks on MPs and on Parliament. And this polarisation and this hostility plays out in everything from normal conversations becoming harder right through to violence. And I suppose what Full Fact is trying to do is recognise that you can look at the same set of facts and reach dramatically different conclusions from them mm -hmm. based on your political priorities and principles and appetites for risks. But it's better that we look at the same set of facts as far as we can with all of its uncertainty. That's the common ground that we okay. have to build from. So I hope that Full Fact can do a little bit to you know, help people find the common ground from which they can have good disagreements. I mean, a lot of this conversation has touched on technology. And you mentioned earlier that Google.org have sponsored some of your work. Is this a case of Full Fact sleeping with the enemy? In a way, yeah. Full Fact also works with Facebook, which essentially uses the fact-checking we do when it has concerns about content on Facebook. It can ask us to fact-check it. We choose what we fact-check and what we don't. But those fact-checks are then displayed directly to Facebook users who can choose whether to pay any attention to them or not. Mm. And they're also used by Facebook in its content moderation. Our fact-checks are directly embedded in Google Search and YouTube, and we run a WhatsApp service. Between all of those internet platforms we reach hundreds of millions of views a year. So it's a hugely important part of being a modern information mm. service is giving people information where they are actually looking for information and information that's really relevant to what they're interested in. But it's also the case that those companies are making design decisions about their products that we believe 
A, they shouldn't be making because they should be overseen by open, democratic, transparent oversight, which is why the online safety bill could be an important and worthwhile initiative, but B, that they are frequently making badly. And we have called them out on that. One of our conditions for working with Facebook was that we would publish transparency reports mm -hmm. um, for program and make public recommendations about how to improve it. We have publicly questioned evidence from the internet companies about the effectiveness of the algorithms they use and how reliable they are. But they are also companies that are enabling democracy. You know, an organization like Fallfact could not have achieved the reach we do mm. before the internet. And it is a balance, understanding where the good is coming from online and challenging these new and extraordinarily unaccountable, powerful entities at the same time. Which sort of, I suppose, brings me to the bit where I display my ignorance to everyone. I nodded sagely earlier on when you talked about automated fact-checking and AI. I know there's a film called AI, but beyond that, I don't know much. Can you just talk us through what automated fact-checking is? What we do is we look for parts of a fact-checking process that can reliably be done at scale by a machine, and then we try to automate those. What you cannot do, what we can't do, what no one else can do, is just replace human fact-checkers with machines. That's not yeah. technologically feasible. But there are three parts of our process that can be done by machines with some important level of reliability. One is finding people repeating claims that we have previously fact-checked. Mm -hmm. um, so we ask for hundreds of corrections a year from politicians, the media and others. And now 20% of those correction requests are of repeats of claims that we previously fact-checked okay. that have been automatically detected by our claim matching software. The second thing we do, we call claim detection. We're automatically scanning, I think, about two and a half million sentences a day from Parliament, from the news, from selected social media, and identifying new and emerging claims on different topics. So we're building software that would let us say, show me all the new claims about Brexit made by a front bench politician in the last seven days. Okay. And that's a really powerful thing. That humans then have to look at that and do something useful with it. Yeah. But clearly a human can't do the equivalent of that in any reasonable amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then the third and most difficult thing we're doing is what, what we call tongue-in-cheek robo-checking, which is taking a certain narrow set of claims where there are authoritative sources of information and getting a machine to go and get that information and check it automatically. So, for example, if you said inflation has risen by 5% since last year, I would go off to the ONS, I would download the inflation spreadsheets, I would look at that, and I would tell you whether it had happened or not. Mm -hmm. And a computer can do most of that quite effectively. And underlying it is the same technology behind things like Alexa. So if you said to Alexa, book me a train ticket to Manchester next Tuesday at 11am, it's identifying that sentence and it's filling slots in it, right? Mm -hmm. It's firstly, okay, this is a book me or something. That's the verb I'm looking for. What am I booking? I'm booking a train mm -hmm. and so on. In the same way, you can go, okay, this is making a claim about numbers. What are the numbers? Inflation. When since last year? And essentially the same underlying technology of slot filling and sentences can be used to automate checking of some claims. And what we want to do is make it really, really hard to get statistics wrong. Because getting okay. statistics wrong is boring. It's not good for politicians. It's not good for anyone else. Let's make it really easy to get them right, really easy to get, really hard to get them wrong. And then we can all move on and have the real political debates. We've got our own AI here. It's called Jonathan Porter's. <laughs> uh, it's a very, very powerful machine that doesn't stop. Jill, do you want yeah, to? Yeah, I just want to ask one something because one of the things is, you know, full fact became known fact checking, the referendum fact checking 
elections fact checking sort of PMQs mm. and things like that. But in the last couple of years, when we've been dominated by the pandemic, you seem to have expanded into being a very trusted resource on public health mm. and sort of you know myth versus reality on that. I'm just sort of quite intrigued. Was that helped enormously? by these AI techniques that you could get across the vast amount of information swirling around on that? Um, how different was dealing with public health claims to dealing with the sort of, you know, stats claims, if you like? It's quite different and quite grim, actually, asking our, our brilliant team of colleagues to spend their time looking for basically two years all about death and disease. And then with Ukraine earlier this year, shifting to state-sponsored disinformation and information warfare and some even grimmer content that we've had to be monitoring in that context. The way we dealt with the pandemic, what, what we saw, which was hugely encouraging, was a massive flight to trusted sources of information. Hmm. It was for the first time in years, traditional TV got a larger audience yeah, uh, yeah. than the year before. Traditional news sources were being used a lot, and so was Full Fact. We had double the users in 2010 than the year before. Oh, wow. 20 million users. 2020, sorry. Um, Just fact-checking you there, Will. <laughs> Thank you, Jill. It's good that somebody's paying attention. So 20 million users in a country with about 50 million adults in it is no small thing. Yeah. And um, we hired a doctor who worked for us, uh, NHS doctor who came and worked for us full-time, took a year out. We had an epidemiologist on staff when it began, a PhD student with the Medical Research Council on a secondment program into full fact, but trying to encourage PhD students to understand more about research communication effectively. So that was a stroke of luck. And we have a team of people who are experts already in monitoring online misinformation, understanding what's spreading. And we worked with other fact checkers all around the world. And what we saw was many of the same claims popping up in one country, and then a week later in another country, and then a week later in the UK. Some of them, you know, famous claims about uh, false health cures. Some of them outlandish claims about helicopters being used to, to spray mm -hmm. chemicals all over cities, which is ridiculous, but, you know, going out there. And some of these claims doing real damage to people's lives. So the cause and effect, you know, when you're trying to sort of uphold high standards in democracy, you know it's important, but it's kind of important in a slightly abstract way most of the time. When a mother rings you up and says, I wasn't going to vaccinate my children, but I couldn't find any trusted information, but then I found full facts and I trusted your information and I was able to make that choice for myself. That's a very different form of impact and a really moving thing that somebody took the trouble to ring us up because we filled that gap for them. I mean, firstly, congratulations. I mean, you've created this organisation. You've taken it from, as you said, a very small organisation to a very big one, both in terms of reach and in terms of the staff. I mean, if I were to ask you over the next five years, what are your ambitions for the organisation? What do you think? Well, firstly, lots of people have built Full Fact and Full Fact really belongs to everybody who takes a stand for honesty in public life. Uh, whether it's an MP correcting the record when they don't have to, or somebody calling out somebody on their own side, or, and here's one of my ambitions, for two and a half thousand people who give us money every month. If you'd like to be one of the people making this work possible, go to fullfact.org slash donate, because that's the best way for us to have true independence and to be able to hold everybody to account. The shift I'd really like to see is that thing about democracy belongs to us all and we all need the ability to stand up and hold people to account. 
And full fat has been an information service for a lot of its life. But more and more, I think we're helping people actually say, this is the kind of democracy I want. This is the kind of quality of information I want online. So as I said, we have this petition asking for improvements to the corrections process in the House of Commons. We've had oh, hundreds of people, I think, I'm not sure, it might be thousands, writing to MPs to say that the online safety bill needs to tackle misinformation and needs to do it in a way that protects and upholds mm -hmm. freedom of expression. And I think the more we make honesty in public life in this rapidly changing information environment we're living in, a, a conversation that everybody is part of, the better off we will be. And the final aspect of that I talk about, which I'm really excited about, is we are committed to working more with people who are targeted by and with misinformation. There are lots of communities mm -hmm. who are now particularly targeted, either being misrepresented or being reached with misinformation, which can be really harmful. And we saw that in the pandemic. Everything from immigrant communities who might have multinational information environments and less trust in UK authorities to pregnant women who are dealing with rapidly changing health information mm -hmm. and uncertain science. You know, it affects all kinds of people. But where unreliable information is really doing people harm, we want to learn to work more alongside people and build partnerships to reach and serve more people that way. Interesting. And it was a slightly self-interested question to, to end on. I mean, I know you, you've worked in the past with academics. You've worked in the past. We collaborated together during the referendum to produce a small publication. What are your conclusions about working with academics? What frustrates you about them? What do they do well? <laughs> I love the let's start with what frustrates you. <laughs> Well, let's start on the other side. The UK is hugely not fortunate. The UK has chosen to have a really remarkable research base in this country. Mm -hmm. And we have serious, thoughtful specialists in all kinds of topics who come out of the woodwork and make it possible for us to have intelligent conversations about important issues. And we have Anand. And I think that's <laughs> it, it is a remarkable richness. And it's really important that we don't take for, that for granted and we continue to think about things like academic independence, research integrity, research funding rigorously and protect those institutions that make that possible. They also speak in the most annoying, polysyllabic, indirect, <laughs> abstract way. And as people who mostly are ultimately funded by the taxpayer, I would just say talking the taxpayer's language is something perhaps we owe as a duty, not as a concession. Will does an absolutely brilliant, uh, if anyone wants to book him, hour and a half presentation to academics on how to present your work in a way that people can understand and he just knocks it out of the park year after year. So I cannot recommend that highly enough. Well, you do it on TikTok, don't you? Clearly. <laughs> sure. Only you, Anand. Would be said, if you happen to be an AHRC-funded early career researcher listening to this, the Institute for Government runs an early <laughs> career research communication programme, which that session is part of, uh, which you should definitely look out for. Okay, we're drawing the line at promoting the IFG, I think, on this podcast. But... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm contractually obliged to say that was utterly fascinating because everyone <laughs>, laughs at me for using that phrase the whole time. But let me just say that really, really was interesting. Thank you so much for coming in. And because it's kind of beer o'clock, I think we can all go for a swift it's half now to round this off. Wine o'clock. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. And thank you for everything UK and Changing Europe does.